From Montana Public Radio, this is Subsurface, resisting Montana's underwater invaders. I'm Nikki Willett. We've heard in previous episodes what it's like to live with invasive zebra and quagga mussels, the costs they can impose, the changes they bring, and the clarity they leave in their wake. We learned how they spread and how managers are working to stay in front of their advances into big sky country. But what if they get here anyway? What are our options then? And what does this invasion mean for the landscape, for us? Today, in the fourth episode of Subsurface, we're looking at Plan B and thinking what the muscle invasion tells us about ourselves. This is Active Resistance. After Montana found a few invasive mussels in two reservoirs in 2016, state managers started drafting a rapid response guideline. It outlines what the state will do if more invasive mussels are detected here. The plan includes a section on something called control measures. Basically, what can we do to eradicate the mussels if we find them? The measures other states have tried haven't been very successful. Mussels have never been eradicated from an entire lake, but they have worked in some trial runs in the field, so it's worth hearing what those options are. One of the early ideas to remove zebra mussels from a lake was literally just that. Dive in, scrape the mussels off rocks and docks, and take them away. A team of scientists, managers, and volunteers tried this in 1999 in a marina in the south end of Lake George in upstate New York. And they didn't just shrug their shoulders and give up. They got angry about it and got in the water. They got in the water with scuba, and they harvested them. Jim Elser is the director of the University of Montana's Flathead Lake Biological Station. He described the Lake George scuba strategy at an invasive species educational meeting near Lakeside last summer. And so they just harvested the heck out of them, and lo and behold, zebra mussels have not taken foot or got spread in Lake George. Jim explained that the mussels need to be really close together in order to reproduce. Remember, both sexes just kind of toss their respective contributions up into the water column and hope some magic happens up there. You got to get a lot of them together because they're sexual. They got to have sex. You got to get the male and the female parts together in the water column. So if you can keep them at low densities, you have hope. So divers targeted the densest patches of a 1,500 square foot area and removed almost 20,000 mussels prior to spring breeding. Volunteers logged almost 300 dive hours during this initial response time, and it seemed to work, except for a single villager or baby mussel picked up in a sample from 2004, lake monitors didn't find zebra mussels in the area again, according to a paper published on the project. Jim Elser from the Flathead Lake Biological Station is buoyed by the Lake George case. So if a study was demonstrated that if detected early, again, environmental DNA detection can do that, and removed by extent before extensive reproduction, it's possible to prevent a successful invasion. There are a few caveats to the Lake George scuba project. For one, there's not enough calcium in Lake George to sustain a breeding population of zebra mussels. So even if scuba divers hadn't thinned the colony, it's unlikely that babies would survive into adulthood. Second, managers continue to find adult mussels on some boat ramps and launches in calcium-rich pockets around the lake. This implies that new mussels were carried into the lake, so manual removal on its own isn't a permanent eradication strategy. 
Finally, it took divers almost 300 hours in the water to put a dent in the colony, and they only targeted one marina. Imagine the dive hours it would take to scrape mussels out of an entire lake. Manual removal would only work in small areas where colonies aren't fully established. A less time-intensive eradication strategy is to dump chemicals on the mussels. We already know this can work in small, self-contained systems, like the water intake pipes at the St. Paul Regional Water Service. But can it work in open water? The Minnesota Department of Natural Resources has tried that in a few different pilot projects to varying levels of success. The most promising attempt was in Christmas Lake in the fall of 2014, just after mussels had been first discovered. The, the Christmas Lake trial um, was successful in, in killing the zebra mussels in the treated areas. Gary Mons is a research scientist with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. The DNR screened off a bay of Christmas Lake, where they knew mussels were breeding, and they tried a three-step treatment. They started with two federally approved mussel-killing pesticides. One, the copper-based EarthTech QZ, that's the same thing that the St. Paul Regional Water Service is using, and the second is a dead bacteria cell called Zequinox that kills mussels if they eat a bunch of it. The DNR also got a special permit to dump potassium chloride, or potash, into the test area. And the treatments worked in that screened-off part of the lake, but... The following year, they found a couple of zebra mussels outside the treatment area. Gary says the Christmas Lake pilot project, which cost about $70,000 to treat a one-acre bay, was a success in a few ways, even though it didn't eradicate mussels from the whole lake. For one, it proved that you can kill off a blooming population if you catch it early and design your treatment area with a buffer. So don't just treat the small area where you find them, treat a larger area. Second, a lot of these treatments have only been tested in laboratories under optimal conditions. This pilot program showed managers what they can expect in the field. The potassium chloride, we found out that in cold water, this is, is ineffective. The chemical just didn't spread out as we thought it might, and the toxicity was not there um, due to the colder water. Christmas Lake is now one of the 2% of lakes, rivers, and wetlands in the land of 10,000 lakes considered infested with zebra mussels. The Department of Natural Resources ended the pilot project without treating the entire lake, which would have been too costly and likely would have harmed other species in the lake. Managers have also tried drawing down water to expose the mussels, which kills them after a while, but drawdowns only work on dammed up lakes that are rather shallow. There's also hope that lakes aren't suitable to zebra and quagga mussels' needs. Managers have looked into that in Montana, and they found that nearly every lake and river in the state has enough calcium and the right chemistry to support the bivalves. Scientists are working on another idea, it's still in research and development, that I like to think of as the nuclear option, or Jurassic Park in reverse. We heard from Mike McCartney in episode two. He's the guy using zebra mussel DNA to better understand how they spread. Mike is also looking for natural weaknesses in the bivalve's own DNA. The idea there is you genetically, you target a gene of interest and you can edit that gene. For example, Mike knows that certain sections of DNA dictate different traits, like how strong the muscle shells are. 
He also knows that some mussels don't process calcium quite right, and that can make their shells weak. They actually wear holes in their shells, and they, they die because the shell no longer provides protection, for example, against, I guess, pathogens or, or whatnot. Um, they, they sort of erode, you know. Mike thinks if he can find all the sections of zebra mussel DNA, the genes that have to do with shell growth... You know, we can evaluate whether we could, we could tweak any of those genes uh, and, you know, eventually just do it to try to make a more, even more calcium-sensitive, um, you know, muscle. He'd engineer one muscle that's extra sensitive to low calcium levels and has trouble growing a strong shell, Usually, a muscle like that wouldn't pass its calcium sensitivity on to its kids. That's a genetic trait that would kill them, so the gene should be weak. But the technology that Mike wants to use... They're called gene drives. ...gives these edited genes super strength, so that the trait, calcium sensitivity, spreads like wildfire through the population. So you can make a subtle change in that gene, changing its, uh, its function or expression... And the really incredible thing about it that is that once you've decided upon a particular edit that you want to do, you can introduce that into an organism and spread it through a population. After a few generations, all the muscles would be calcium sensitive. Or maybe Mike could tweak the genes for bissel threads and make it harder for muscles to latch onto hard surfaces so they can eat. Or maybe they're all born male and they can't reproduce. This research is still in the very early phases. We don't even really know yet, like, what kind of genes we would hit. But Mike says this is one strategy that's unlikely to impact other species in the water, and it has the potential to wipe out every last zebra and quagga mussel from North America. <laughs> I mean, it's, it sounds crazy, right? When you think about this, it sounds like science fiction. But it's absolutely not. The more that you learn about the ongoing use of these editing tools, it, 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 does, it does scare you somewhat, right, because of the power of this. Theoretically, genetic manipulation is a safe way to target and eradicate invasive species. It's already being used on mosquitoes that carry the deadly Zika virus, and Mike thinks we're about a decade away from being able to try it on mussels. But there's a lot we still don't know about DNA manipulation and gene driving. There's a chance that the edits could spread to native mussels, which managers want to protect, or that they'd be carried back to lakes where zebra and quagga mussels are native and decimate endemic populations there. There's also the ethical question of whether we should use this technology and make permanent decisions about other species. We'll ponder these existential quandaries after the break. This is Subsurface, Resisting Montana's Underwater Invaders, a podcast from Montana Public Radio. We're in the middle of episode four, Active Resistance. You can find previous and future episodes and check out pictures and video from Nikki's trip to the Great Lakes on our website, mtpr.org. Do you have questions about the underwater invaders? Maybe we have the answer. You can send us your questions via our website. Click on the subsurface logo at mtpr.org or contact us through Facebook or Twitter. 
Did you know that Clean Drain Dry works not only to block the spread of zebra and quagga mussels, but other invasive species too, like starry stonewort, Eurasian water milfoil, and spiny water flea? We'll hear about the unintended consequences of a few more invasive species after the break. We're back. This is Subsurface Episode 4, Active Resistance. Before the break, we learned that there may come a day, and not too long from now, when we have the ability to wipe zebra and quagga mussels off the face of the continent. When I first heard about gene driving the mussels into obliteration, I thought, yes, let's do this. Let's out-muscle the mussels. But then I remembered a group of guys I met at a low-key fishing tournament on Geneva Lake in Wisconsin. 687. Nice fish, Bob. Way to go. Fishermen often feel the impacts of invasive species firsthand. An invasive eel called the sea lamprey has decimated lake trout fisheries in the Great Lakes, and a tiny crustacean called the spiny water flea can ruin fishing lines and tackle. But when I ask Ryan Colleen about zebra and quagga mussels... Invasive species? Yeah, it's something we need to pay attention to. But at the same time, there's some good that's come out of them, essentially. You know, on, on the bass fishing side of it, anyway. Mark Fry agrees yeah. that the mussels' impacts haven't quite lived up to the hype. Water's a little clearer. Water's a lot clearer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's about the only difference, really. It's, it, it changes your technique, but the fish are still there. What do you mean it changes your technique? Well, you can't fish. Uh, if the fish can see you, and they're spookier, so you have to either make longer casts or throw different baits or find more weeds or whatever. Mark says the fishing's actually been really good, especially in lakes with zebra mussels. But he doesn't yeah. think that will last forever. He's waiting for what he considers the inevitable downside of invasion. As soon as men start playing with things, <laughs> never goes the way it's planned. Invasive species often have value for at least some humans. And some folks would even argue that the invaders have value in and of themselves. Hi, Nikki. Joey Tuminello studies philosophy at the University of North Texas, specifically the philosophy and ethics of invasive species. We started our chat by defining some terms. Yeah, when you label a species or members of species as invasive, this automatically kind of equates to a death sentence. Joey says scientific issues are often presented as objective or value neutral. But the field of invasion biology is inherently value driven. Even the words we use to describe species, invasive, nuisance, exotic, frame how we manage them. These are generally ultimately attributable to human actions, intentional or unintentional. I think that makes it even more interesting uh, and maybe even more problematic that we treat uh, invasive species as enemies, right? As if they're legitimate enemies that are going out of their way to cause ecological destructions. It sure can feel that way, especially when the arrival of a species wrecks havoc on our lives. But in many cases, species that we label as invasive end up in new places by accident. Joey points out that humans have long played the role of invasion facilitator, often with good intentions. Take, for example, Joey's favorite critter as a kid growing up in Louisiana, a beaver-like rodent with orange buck teeth called Nutria. When my parents would bring me to the local city park, uh, they 
live there, uh, certain groups of Nutria, and I would see them habitating and just, you know, living their lives out in this area. Nutria, also called Koipu, were brought to the United States from South America at the end of the 1800s as a fur commodity. But when the fur market collapsed 50 years later, people let their unwanted animals go, or they sold them as weed eaters. Unfortunately, Nutria eat native plants too, and they've caused serious damage to coastal wetlands. Today, Nutria are considered invasive species in more than a dozen states, but Joey says management isn't standardized. We're okay with them in some places, but not others. They're kind of normalized within this urban setting of a park, uh, but at the same time, outside of that, uh, they're being they're being killed, right, um, for ecological purposes. Zebra and quagga mussels fall into this niche too. We can measure their destructive nature in dollars and cut-up feet, while at the same time, fishermen on Geneva Lake, scuba divers in Lake Michigan, and lakeside property owners all reap a benefit of the invasive bivalves, clearer water. These are all symptoms, Joey says. Instead of focusing on perceived benefits or harm, we should be addressing the underlying cause. Some of those root causes boil down to, you know, this treatment of non-human nature as if it exists as a commodity to be exploited for our gain. The flip side of exploiting nature is the argument that humans have a responsibility to protect the purity and pristine nature of the landscape. But that argument comes with its own complicated ethics. And I think that that's not just, you know, that's not just inaccurate, uh, but is potentially dangerous rhetoric as well. Um, there's not, I mean, if we're talking about this, this concept of ecological purity, um, you know, how, how much of a factor should time play whenever we're trying to figure out is this, if a species is invasive or not, right? Um, should we go back to the point where all of life, you know, if there was a single point where all of life evolved from, is that the only point? Of, of actual nativity. Joey says this line of reasoning touches on an uncomfortable legacy of environmental thought. The vilification, for instance, uh, which is also tied, uh, not just parallels, but also historically tied to eugenicist rhetoric and the, you know, uh, ideas of, of purification and cleansing. Zebra and quagga mussels clearly cause harm to human values and other species in their ecosystem, so our decisions about how to prevent or even eradicate them seem justified. But Joey says it's worth diving into these uncomfortable questions. It's important for us to, again, like have some kind of explicit discussion about the values that are embedded in these practices uh, rather than presenting them as value neutral uh, and completely... Um, objective. David Lodge is also aware of the balancing act that is invasive species management. I mean, we were imposing our values when we allowed zebra and quagga mussels to invade in the first place. David is the director of the Atkinson Center for Sustainable Future at Cornell University in New York. Invasive species make up a big part of his research interests. When any group of scientists gets together and, and sort of lists the, the, the most urgent challenges to biodiversity and ecosystems on the planet, and invasive species are always on that top five list. 
David sees management of invasive species as weighing benefits to humans on one side and harm on the other. He says the benefits of shipping goods internationally, which unintentionally brought the mussels to America in the first place, continues to outweigh their harmful effects. Until that balance shifts, we're going to keep reacting instead of preparing. So we have intended as a society to accept those damages and really just adapt our own behavior and suffer the consequences, the negative side effects of global trade. David would rather anticipate the harm and prevent it in the first place, like we do with diseases. We develop vaccinations that are effective against the kinds of flu that are most likely to arrive, and we do the vaccinations at the right time and in the right places to be most effective at preventing, from, uh, preventing a flu epidemic. And we can take those same approaches that have been used so successfully in public health to invasive species more broadly. That means investing in prevention strategies, like boat inspection stations, public education, and early detection technology. David says it's hard to convince people to pay for that kind of foresight. So I don't envy our managers and policymakers, uh, like the governor of Montana, who have to uh, decide about sometimes quite expensive efforts to prevent something bad from happening. The desired outcome is that nothing happens. And, and so you're spending money to prevent a bad thing from happening. And that's difficult to communicate, but indeed it is what we need to do far more of in order to increase or to maintain high human welfare in the years to come. If we don't spend money now to prevent invasions, then we will forever suffer the consequences of those invasions. He says, ultimately, when we talk about managing invasive species, we're really talking about managing ourselves. Uh, far better, though, if we could prevent invasions like that in the future so that we wouldn't be left with these management uh, conundrums, including ethical conundrums, about how to respond to an organism that we could have prevented from arriving in the first place. How do we do that? We're with the Minnesota DNR. We're just doing watercraft checks. So just okay. got a couple of questions for you. And we're going to look over your boat and get you on your way. We change our habits. And have you spoken to a watercraft inspector before? Uh, yeah. We take a few extra minutes to clean, drain, and dry our water equipment. And you got your motor going down. Perfect. You got your plug out. Excellent. We keep our eyes out for unintended consequences. See if there's any weeds or anything on your boat or trailer. We think about our own movement through the landscape and the ripples of impacts that we leave behind us. Well, less chance of spreading stuff around when you stick to the same body of water, right? Well, we help each other remember. Everything looks good, so we appreciate your time and we appreciate you uh, helping keep our lakes clean. You bet. And eventually, change takes hold. I've seen it happen at a boat launch in Minnesota. It's the end of the day. The state inspectors had packed up for the day and gone home. And a really fancy red boat just pulled out of the water. And the boat owner hopped out, and he dropped his engine to drain it of any leftover water. He ran a rag over the hull, and he stooped to pull off weeds from his trailer. The owner did pull the drain, and now he's kind of buttoning it up before they drive off.
This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Nikki Willette. Nora Sachs is our associate producer. Eric Whitney is our editor and executive producer. Josh Burnham is our web editor. Special thanks to Peter Braganzer, Bo Baker, Olga Kramer, Sam Wilson, and Nate Hedgie for their help brainstorming subsurface. And extra special thanks to all of the folks who shared their experiences and ideas about zebra and quagga mussels. While some of your voices didn't make it on the air, you very much helped shape the story. Subsurface is a production of Montana Public Radio with financial support from the Solutions Journalism Network, a nonprofit organization dedicated to rigorous and compelling reporting about responses to social problems. Learn more at our website, mtpr.org.